Have you ever had somebody that you, that you met, maybe you didn't know them really well, but they came with a reputation? You know, you, you'd heard about them, you had some expectations, maybe a stereotype of who they were, and then once you sat down and got to know them, you realized that reputation was not true, that was nothing like them at all. You ever had that kind of experience? When I was at college, we had a professor. His name was Dr. Roark. And when I got to Howard Payne as a freshman, he taught in the uh, religion department. He taught philosophy. The, the word on the street, the reputation was, do not take Dr. Roark. Uh, one, because he's hard. And two, because he's a heretic. You know, and I was like, what, what? You know, as a college freshman, I'm like, you know, in, in the Bible department, you know, a guy, and they're like, oh, yeah, he says all kinds of things that are, that are unbiblical. And, and every year, all four years I was there at college, there was, there was a group of students who would go to the administration or they would go to the dean and tr- try to get this guy fired because he said this or he said that. And so I avoided, like, every class I could take with him. Uh, not because of that, but because he was hard. That was the reason why I avoided it. But you had to take... Um, Christian doctrines with him. He was the only person that taught it. And so I had him. And as, and as I got to know him, here's what I discovered. He would say things in class that were borderline, if not, in my opinion, unbiblical. And he'd say them. And, I mean, students would sit up and they would, they would start to argue and the discussion would go out. Now, if you left class and you went to his office and you sat down and you said, Dr. Rock, I'm really struggling with this because you said this, and, and here's what I'm saying. What you would find out is he more than likely believed exactly what you believed. But what he wanted to do in the academic environment of that university is throw things out to students who had been spoon-fed their Bible all their lives and make them wrestle with things that, that some theologians did believe, maybe that the world did believe. He didn't. But he wanted you to defend what you believed rather than just accept what you were being taught. And I actually began to appreciate that. It happens, though, to me. Last Sunday night, we were meeting with our Poland mission team for the very first time, and we're having them all uh, verbally share their story as a part of the interview process because they're going to have an opportunity to talk to some Polish people about Jesus and what God's done in their life. And so we wanted to hear it verbally. And so we split all of our adults up, and we let students go to different adults so we could speed up the process so I didn't have to hear all 23 stories. And so I, I heard three or four interviewed, and I got done, and I stepped outside, and there were still a couple students in the hallway. I said, hey, who's next? I, I'm free. And nobody, nobody moved. And I looked down, and there was a girl down the hallway, and she was waiting for a room to open up where someone was in. I said, have you, have you gone yet? And she's like, well, come on. I was like, what? And she's like, and she said, she's, you're intimidating. And I was like, no, I'm not. Come on. You know, so, but there's that reputation. So we go in, we sat down. She tells her story. We talked through it. And at the end, I said, now, was it really that bad? Was it that intimidating? She started laughing. She said, no. But, you know, that reputation, I'd rather tell my story, like, to an adult who's, uh, I'm friends with their daughter or son rather than the youth minister. You know, I might tell my story and he might go, no, that's totally wrong. You're not even going to heaven. You know, I mean, let's look at what the Bible, you know. So nobody wants to sit down with that guy, you know. And so sometimes that, what, what I think is sometimes God has a reputation that is ill-conceived for who he is. And last week we talked about ultimate beginnings. We're in the series called Case Close, looking at some apologetics, handling some hard questions. And this morning we're going to handle this question that gets posed of God all the time, and it's this. And it comes from people who are struggling with their faith. It comes from atheists who are mad. And it's phrased kind of like this, and you hear it multiple times. If God is all-loving, 
how could he send someone to hell? It's a great question. If God is truly all loving, how could God send somebody to hell? Now, we're going to look at a couple of different angles, and we're going to actually go through several different scriptures this morning instead of just kind of camping out in one like we normally do. But what I want to suggest to you is that that question that gets asked on a regular basis, somewhat like that, is a loaded question. And it's a loaded question that comes from a reputation from, of God that he doesn't deserve. Now, a lot of people in their mind see God as this, like, gray-headed, gray-beard guy on a throne that's like a king. And most of the time, he's, he's angry. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, maybe not believers, if you're a believer, but most people see God as he's up in heaven, and he is just looking for people who are doing good things and people who are doing bad things. And he's going he's gonna to bless the people that are doing good things, and he's going to punish the people who are doing bad things, and he's waiting like with a lightning bolt for you to just to finally cross that line of one too many bad things. That's bad thing number a thousand. Boom. And this idea that God is in heaven and, and, and these people who do bad things, that he is, he's vindictive and he's angry that they didn't keep his rules and that, and that almost in their minds that there's this, there's this joy in the heart of God to punish these people who didn't do what he said. That's kind of, I mean, that, that's a lot of the way the world sees God. And so because of that, the question gets loaded, how could a loving God, which God is all loving, send people to hell? God goes, you, I'm tired of you, I hate you, you're going to be punished forever. Now, if you've got a Bible, I want you to flip over to John chapter 3. I'm going to look at a passage of Scripture that you'll recognize. I'm going to look at chapter 3, verse 16, even if you've never opened your Bible before, you've probably seen this before because it's been at a football game in the stands. Somebody's held up a sign. Say it's probably one of the most famous passages of Scripture. John 3, 16, Jesus is in a conversation with a religious leader named Nicodemus when this happens. And Jesus says this. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should perish but not have eternal life. You recognize that. Most of the time we stop there because that was the verse we memorized, but let's keep going and see the rest of this conversation in the context. He says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. That light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. Scripture tells us this, that Jesus' purpose wasn't to come to the world to go, you are bad and you're out. And yeah, like you, you're in, and you're out, and you're, oh, goodness, you're out. What the Scripture says is that, that the world was condemned already, that Jesus didn't come to pass judgment. Jesus came on the flip side because he loved people who were already condemned. He didn't come to send people to hell. He actually came to rescue people from hell. There's a 180-degree there's a flip from the way we see God as this vindictive God who wants to punish people because he doesn't like them from the God of the Scripture who came, left heaven, came to earth because he loved people and wanted to save them from the sentence that they had already given themselves. 
Now, we have to go back to Genesis, to the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. You can read it later. But Adam and Eve are in the garden, and God has placed this tree in the center of the garden of Eden, and it's called, the, he refers to it as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what he says to Adam and Eve is, hey, you, you're created in this paradise. You have Eden, you have everything you could ever dream, desire, it, it, it's paradise, and I'm here. The presence of God is going to be in relationship, creator with creation. But there's a tree in the middle, and I don't want you to eat from it. And some people would question, a good question is, why did God do that? Well, God did that because without that tree, there is absolutely no opportunity for Adam and Eve, humanity, to love God. There's no, there's no opportunity for them to say, God, I choose you over me. There's no tree. What we have is a bunch of little God robots who have no opportunity to fall in love with their creator. And so this tree gets placed in the Garden of Eden, and it is this, this opportunity for free will love to be practiced. Now, you would, you would not like this scenario. And we kind of talked about this before. If I walked up to you and said, hey, would you be my friend? Would you love me? Or maybe I say to my wife, hey, do you want to get married? And she goes, well, let me think about it. And I pull out a gun, and I go, well, you can, or I'm going to murder your entire family. You have no choice. I'm going to kill everybody, and I'm going to kill you. That's your option. Or you can love me and marry me. Now, she would say, well, you've taken away the choice. I mean, I don't have an option at that point. And actually, she does because choice is inherent in that. But in, without the Garden of Eden, there's, without the tree, there's no choice. We're going to do all that we can do because that's all that we know. There's no relationship there. There's no opportunity for her to go, you know what? I see, I see your character, and I love you. There's no opportunity for me to say, I see your beauty, I see your compassion, I see your heart for people, and I'm falling in love with you, and I, and I want to make some choices in my life that make you number one and make you my spouse, to make you my love. If I don't have the opportunity to choose that, I don't actually have the opportunity to love. It's just this forced thing. And so this one tree in all of this garden, and God says, listen, in this love relationship that we have, the way that you are going to show me love is by choosing me over yourself, choosing me over the knowledge of good and evil. And the tempter comes, Satan comes, and tricks Adam and Eve, and sin enters in the world. At that moment was, was the time where humanity said, you know what, God, yeah, we love you. We love what you're about, and we love what you call us to do, and we love the relationship. You've asked one thing of us. You've asked us to sacrifice one thing for this relationship. But we love ourselves more, and we're going to go after the one thing, out of all the things we've been given, the one thing that's been the no. Because at the end of the day, we want it all. At the end of the day, God, you have 100%, we have 99.99%, but we want to be God, and we want it all, and we want to be like you, and we want to now know evil that didn't exist before that sin came in, and we are going to choose self and a love of self over a love of you. Now, that's some pretty heavy theology. That's what happens in the garden. Sin enters in the world when mankind says, you know what, we want to be God and not you. We want to be at the top, not you. We want it all, not you. And sin enters into humanity, and we have this curse. 
this natural bent towards sin that you and I, and you've seen it as parents, you don't have to teach your kids to be selfish and love self, right? I mean, when they're little, it's, it's inherent in them because the Scripture teaches that we're, we're bent towards that. That's our natural inclination is to go after self and to put ourselves on the throne. So you have God who set out perfection, set out a place where he could walk with his creation, and creation rebelled against him. A holy God, a sinless God, who loved so much that he created Eden, and we said, pass. Now, another aspect of God's character we find throughout Scripture is that he's also not only holy and sinless and loving, but he's also just. God, God is a just God. Now, I don't know if you follow the news. This happened, uh, I guess, maybe a month or so ago. There was a gentleman, his name's Thomas Johnson. Actually went and watched him play football when he was in high school out of one of the Dallas schools. Thomas Johnson was an elite wide receiver, went to one of our Texas universities, and halfway through his freshman year, disappeared. Like, disappeared, left campus, didn't show up for football practice. People didn't know where he was. It was kind of all over the news. And then the parents came out like several days later and said, hey, he's safe, but he's not going back to school. And he kind of disappeared for a while. And then this year, while a guy was in Dallas jogging along one of the jogging trails in the park, Thomas Johnson came out of, I don't know if it was the woods, the trees, or whatever, with a machete and hacked an innocent stranger to death. One guy riding a bike said, as he was driving up, he said he saw a guy hitting something. As he got closer, he realized it's a body, and he just, like, pedaled off. And Thomas Johnson was yelling after him, stop, and he went and called the police, and the police get there, and Thomas Johnson gets arrested. Didn't know the guy. Didn't have a confrontation with the guy. The guy's minding his own business, jogging through Dallas, and he gets attacked and murdered in this brutal way. Fast forward a few weeks later, and the man who was murdered's wife can't take all of the pressure, and she takes her own life. So now there's two people that have been lost because of this crazy circumstance. So let's just fast forward, though, into the future and use your imagination. So you are, let's make you a relative of this couple a father, a mother, your children, or a, a, a brother or sister. And you're sitting in the courtroom, and Thomas Johnson is there, and he's confessed to it. He says he, he's done it. He said that he was angry and wanted to take his anger out on somebody. And as you're sitting there, the judge says this. The judge looks and goes, well, you know what? I mean, both people are gone. I mean, you can't hurt them anymore. And I, and I think you need a second chance. I mean, I, I realize what you did was bad, but people make mistakes. So not guilty, you're free to go. How would, how would you feel about that if it was your children? I mean, you would probably be in that judge's courtroom a year or so later after you chased down the guy that got released and murdered him, right? I mean, you, there would be this sense of you that goes, that is absolutely wrong. There's an injustice was committed. that This man is not going to pay the penalty for his crimes. And I mean, you, you would flip, and rightfully so. And you know why you would? Because when you were created in the image of God, part of that was having a sense of justice because God by his character is just. And when you see things that are unjust, it wells up inside of you and you go, that's, that's not right. Now, sin has skewed that in us too. And so we, we're not, we don't have the same sense of justice that God does, but there's still that glimmer of it in there. And as we, if you're a believer, as you become more and more like Jesus, that sense of justice, that glimmer, begins to be polished and shines more like the heart of God. But God is this just God. 
And, and he can't not be just. And so when, he, when, when the Garden of Eden incident happens and sin enters into the world, God, who did everything he could to have this relationship with his creation, and they've wronged him, they've turned his back on him, he has to, by his character, punish sin, or he ceases to be just. And so in the craziest of things, God doesn't punish sin by going, well, you know what? When you sin the first time, when you turn your back on me as creator and you're the creation, I made you, and the moment you turn your back on me, you know what? You're just done. God only doesn't do that. But God says sin has to be punished because I'm just. So here's what I'm going to do because I love these people so much. I'm going to leave heaven myself. I'm going to take the form of man and, and walk like they walked and do what they did, and I'm going to do it sinless. He did it in the form of Jesus. And at the end of the day, 30-some-odd years of his life, I'm going to live sinlessly, and because their sin has to be punished, I'm going to offer myself up to be punished on the cross so that sin could be atoned for. Now, we've leveled this charge at God, that he's unjust and he's unfair and he's unloving because a loving God would never send somebody to hell. We've already discovered that God doesn't send people to hell. We chose it. We chose hell when we said, you know what, God, I don't, want to, I don't want to do things your way. I want to do things my way. God, I don't want to be in your presence. I want, to, I, want to, I want to have my own kingdom. And then God says, well, you know what, that's not best for you. Instead of going, okay, fine. God says, that's not best for you, and I love you, and I'm going to pursue you. But you've got sin in your life now, and heaven is sinless, and those two things can't come together. So here's the deal. Because I've got to punish that, I'm going to punish myself so that you can be forgiven, and so that you can have heaven, this sinless perfection, once again, like Eden was. Now, is that a mean, vindictive God, or is that an entire flip of the coin that is a loving, pursuing God that says, I'm going to do everything I can because I love you more than you can imagine? You know, but at the end of the day, and we'll pause there, and let me tell you this story, and we'll connect it. There's a story you have a guy, and it's a true story, happened not too long ago, named Douglas MacArthur McCain. Now, Douglas MacArthur was one of the World War II legends. Douglas MacArthur McCain was anything but that. Young man that grew up in Minnesota, normal teenager like any of ours, referred to by his friends as a goofball, moves to San Diego to go to college. While he's in San Diego, he gets a job at a, at a restaurant that serves Somali food, starts to talk to some people that are um, a Muslim, Starts going to a mosque, meets some people that aren't just Muslims that you might know, but radical Muslims, jihadists. And he ends up leaving San Diego and getting to Syria where he began to fight for ISIS. And he's put Facebook posts up and things like that, changed his name to Duale, the slave of Allah. Said he was with his brothers, tweeted that out when he was there in Syria, fighting for ISIS against American troops and against freedom. In the process of that, he dies in the battlefield. So let me ask you this. What would your thoughts be about this American who's also a soldier being brought back and his body being buried at Arlington National Cemetery in D.C.? Well, like, if you're an American patriot, you go, no way. And that didn't happen. So don't, I mean, I don't want to, people are like, oh, my goodness. Obama, you know, somebody be blaming Obama for that. <laughs> Didn't happen. Shouldn't happen. 
But you know what, why, why also, it shouldn't happen just because of the principle, because he's not an American soldier, he was an ISIS soldier. But you know why else it shouldn't happen? Because he wouldn't want it to happen. He wouldn't want to be buried there. He wouldn't want to be buried amongst American soldiers that fought for freedom and American way of life. He fought against that. He would have said, no, I want my body here. He would have said, I don't want any part of that economy. I don't want any part of that kingdom. I don't, I don't stand underneath that American flag. Don't, don't bury me in the most hallowed grounds where that American flag raises over. So let's go back to this story of this perfect God, this holy God, this sinless God, whose creation rebelled against him, and to satisfy his own justice, he punishes his own son so that people could be forgiven and be re- restored and redeemed back to the state that they were. He's given you choice, free choice to say, God, I choose to love you. I choose to be under your flag. I choose to be in your kingdom. And if the end of a day of a person's life comes, and through their 70-plus years on earth, they've said, I don't want to be a part of that kingdom. I don't want my life to be under that banner or that flag. I don't want to fight in the battle of the spiritual warfare on the side of God. Why in the world would God, who loves enough that he gives us free choice and allows us to choose, usurp your free choice when you've said from 70 years, I don't want anything to do with the kingdom. Heaven simply is going to be eternity in the presence of God. If you don't want to be in the presence of God for the 70 years here, why would God assume you want to be in this presence for eternity? If you want to be under another flag, another, it's not that God has said, I'm punishing you because I hate you and I'm vindictive. What what comes down to it is you've said with your life, I don't want any part of that kingdom. I don't want to be under your flag. I don't want to worship you. I'm not interested in that. What you stand for, God, is not what I stand for. I stand for this. And God says, okay, then When eternity comes, because we're eternal beings, I'm going to continue to grant you your free will and your free choice to live apart from me, you have. Because that is actually the loving thing to do. I'm not going to usurp your free will at any point along the way. And when you die, if you don't want to be a part of his kingdom, you get what you asked for. Yet we've leveled this charge at God, that he's mean and vindictive, When God has said, I've done everything I can to woo you, chase you down, do everything I can to alleviate and take away your sin, to redeem your life so that you can be in the presence of mine. And through all of that, you've continued to say, I don't want anything to do with you. God says, okay, I understand. You don't want to come into my kingdom. You want to fight under another flag. That's still your free choice. Let's stop charging God as the unloving God, when he's done everything he can to be loving, to pursue, and to redeem, and then charge him with being unloving when he gives us what we ask for. You know, that's, that's insane. It's crazy. But yet, that's what we do, because we see God from a different perspective. Now, got a few minutes, and you will have time to get in your smarts, but I want to kind of flip over to an, a, another question. We won't take nearly as long, because one of the harder questions, then, is this. It's the question that when I was a sophomore in high school, I remember this. You know, you have moments that you never forget. I remember where I was standing at 206 Red Oak in Harker Heights, Texas. I can picture the living room, the kitchen, where I picked up the phone and opened up a phone book, because that's what we had in those days. And I looked up First Baptist Church at Clean, and I called, and I asked to speak to my youth minister at the time. And he answered the phone, and I said, hey, I'm, I'm reading my Bible, and I'm struggling with this. What happens to people who are like, you know, they're like living in Africa in the bush 
There's no missionaries there. They, they don't have a Western world. They've never heard the name Jesus. What happens to them when they die? That's probably the harder question. And I'll never forget. Because I'm like, got pen and paper, like ready to go. Like, hit me with it. I'm a young believer. That's like, hit me with it. And he goes, okay, are you ready? And I said, yes. And he goes, I don't know. I was like, what? Like, you get paid to do this stuff, you know? You went to seminary. And he said, here's what I do know. That God is faithful and God is just by his character. And whatever God does, in any circumstance, that to anything, whatever God chooses to do is the faithful and the just thing to do. And I remember sitting there thinking through that going, wow, it's blown my mind. I don't know. We'll ask God when he gets there, but let's talk about some things that we do know. If you have your Bible, go over to Romans chapter 1. Because we do know this in verse 19. It says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So here's what he says. So they are without excuse. What we know is this. The power of God has been made known to the world, to humanity, through creation. We know that in every place in the world, people walk outside and they see a sunset. And the, and the, the character of God is stirred in them, or, or the, the response to God is stirred in them. If we see this creation, we go, there's got to be something bigger than us. And so we know that. Scripture makes it clear. Paul says that to that day, and it's true to us today, that God's, God's revelation of himself that he exists is revealed to us in creation. That we see it, and when there's this sense, when we look out into the stars, that you know what? There's something bigger than me. So we do know that. We know that God reveals himself to, to everyone through creation. Here's what else we know. Hit number two up. We know that Jesus is the only way. John 14, 6, Jesus said, he said, I am the way, not a way, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father, no one comes to God except through me. Jesus is very clear. We know that. That Jesus is the way to heaven. That all roads, all religions don't lead there. Being good enough doesn't lead there. Jesus is the entrance into a relationship with God. We know that God reveals himself to creation. We know that Jesus is the answer, and that's kind of where the rub is because we go, well, what about the guy who's like, you know, in the Amazon, and he does recognize that God exists, and he goes, man, there's something bigger than me, but Jesus is the only way, what happens? And, and the answer is, I don't know. I'm not going to discount and go, oh, God will probably give him a pass because we know Jesus is the only way. What God does, I don't know, but he's faithful and he's just, and what he does is the faithful and just thing to do. And so we're going to see that coming up in a second things. We know number three. What I just said, God is faithful and just, and whatever he does is the faithful and just thing to do. Now, here's the fourth thing. We cannot make the mistake of equating our sense of justice and right with God's sense of justice and right. That's what's happening here. When we level this, these charges against God, we go, God, that's not fair. If God said, if, if we get to heaven and we go, wow, so the people in the Amazon, they went, oh, they went to hell, I, Whew, I didn't really expect that, God. I don't, I don't know what you, where you're at. You might go, yeah, I thought that. You might go, oh, I don't know. You know, 
when we go, God, that's not fair, you know what God's response back to you is going to be? Cool, cool. How about this? How about you create something from nothing with a spoken word? How about you make creation? And then when you make creation, then you can define fair. And you can define just. And you can define what is faithful. But until then, don't take your sin-skewed idea of justice and say that this is justice and this is right and what God has said is just and right is wrong. Because what you've done at that point is said, you know what, God, I'm here and you're here. I'm in first place and you answer to me. God's sense of justice and what God says is right is right whether or not we agree with it because he's God and you're not. So we, can't, we cannot get that skewed. Number five, we know that God loves his creation more than we could ever imagine. That, that's, that, that's, that's the other thing. The problem is, you know, we think, well, gosh, I'm concerned about the people in the Amazon that don't know Jesus. Well, guess who else is? More than you. Because that person that levels that charge, you go, well, what, that's not fair of God. You know, my question, but you're really concerned about them. Well, what have, you, what have you done about it other than complain about God? Because God is actively and has been from the beginning of time doing things to reach those people and calling his people to reach those people. And he's been loving those people and he loved them before they were born and you didn't even know about him until seventh grade. You know? And we're like, God, you're such a bad God. going, you need to step back because I love my people more than you could imagine. And then here's the last thing that we do know, that God wants all people to be in heaven. 2 Peter 3, 9, you don't have to flip there. You can write it down, look at it later. It says this, talking about when Jesus is coming back. Because when Jesus comes back, game over. There's no overtime. It says in verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise of coming back, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The heart of God is to see people in heaven. Because he loves him, he's been serving him, he's done everything he can to make that happen. It's not God who's on trial. It's his people who haven't done what he's called them to do. So what do you do? Two things. The first thing is this. If, if you're concerned about it, then you need to start praying. If that's something that bothers you, if you go, man, I wrestle with why the people in the Amazon, the people in the bush in Africa, the people on the, the backside of Australia, I, I, I wrestle with what, what God would do to them. Would they spend an eternity apart from God? You know what you need to do? You need to start praying for missionaries on a regular basis. You need to start praying, God, I'm, I, I'm begging you to, to send people. I'm, I'm begging you to reach these people. I'm begging you to use creation to make these people wonder about you and to seek you out. And God, I pray that you strategically place people around them that could walk into their tribes, their villages, into their office spaces and tell them about you. I mean, that, that's a no-brainer. If that bothers you, you we've got to start praying about it. You've got to get on some missionaries' blogs, on some missionaries' uh, Facebook groups, and, and, and start going, man, every time you post something, I'm going to pray fervently for the work that, that God is doing through you there. There's a great website. Uh, uh, I believe David hit it up there. I think it's operationworld.org. <coughs> yeah, operationworld.org. This is fantastic. I ordered the book um, for my kids and my family. And then I realized that you can get the same thing free online. So you can save the 30 bucks that I wasted. But you can come up to this, these prayer resources and the, and the country list. And you can, they've got a prayer guide where you as a family, as a person, can pray for every country in the world throughout the year. And it'll give you what to pray for. Here's what's happening in this country. Here's how you can specifically pray. 
And if you care about what's happening to the people, that, the, the answer is, I don't know, then there you go. There's a resource. Find some missionaries. Start praying. Here's the second thing. Pray. Number two is you go. If you care, go. When there's different types of mission trips. Some mission trips are like social justice oriented. We used to go to Brazil, and that, we did a lot of that. We go and we paint a police station and paint people's houses. And through that serving that need that they had because they couldn't afford it on their own, it gave us the opportunity to show Jesus and talk about Jesus. And I could tell you incredible stories about that where, uh, where like the, the, the military general of the whole region called one of the police officers in because we were painting, told him, I will be in town, be at my office on Monday morning at 10 o'clock. And he's saying, oh, man, am I going to be in trouble for this because I brought this mission group in and they, they painted this police station, police station in the military, the same in Brazil. He goes there, and it's like the general shows up in his office, and the general says, I want you to tell me about this Jesus the people serve. <laughs> Hello. I mean, there's, there's, there's mission trips like that. There's mission trips like we'll take some students here in, in a few months to Poland, and that's going to be much more evangelistic. We're going to be going and sharing our story and talking about Jesus, what Jesus has done in our life, because a lot of the Polish people don't know Jesus, and we don't want them to die and be apart from him. If you're concerned about it, do something about it and stop just judging God. Pray, go, give, get involved. Now, I'm going to close with this and then let you talk. If you have a heart for people and you want to take God off of, off of the trial because people are going to hell, even though I think we've pretty much explained today that that's just God granting them their wish, not sending them. They've, they've asked to be separated from God. But, but if that still bothers you, I want you to consider this. Because you look and you go, man, the world's a big place. If I led one person to Christ every week of my life for the next 40 years, that would be impressive. Would it not? I mean, that, that would be pretty impressive. I wrote down what that number would be on a whole other sheet of paper. Um, 52 times 40. Over 2,000. You know what's more amazing? If I said, you know, instead of one person a week, I'm going to pray for one person for the year. And I'm going to share with them. I'm going to love them. And I'm going to let them see Jesus through me. And as the Holy Spirit begins to move in that person's life, and they come because they've seen real love, they've seen God in action through me. As they decide to follow Jesus, I'm going to spend that year discipling them. I'm going to lead them to Jesus and disciple them teach them what it means to walk in the faith. I'm going to teach them how to lead other people to Christ. And the next year, not one a week, one, the next year I'm going to do one other person while the person I did last year does somebody else. Year one, it's just going to be me. And year two, it's going to be me and my friend. And year three, it's going to be me and my friend and our two people. There's going to be four. Here's what that looks like. In year four, it's eight of us. In year five, it's 16 of us. In year six, it's 32. In year 34, not year 40. In year 34, it's 8.58 billion people, or what we could call the planet. Isn't that crazy? 40 years, 2,000 people, or one person a year that I invest in and I love well, and I disciple, and I help them become a disciple maker. By the way, this wasn't my plan. This was like Jesus' plan from the beginning. I didn't make this up. The world would know Christ. So if you want to make a difference, 
Start discipling somebody. Now, here's one last thing. So I'm going to make it easy for you. Because you're going, okay, man, maybe there's that guy at work. I just don't know, you know, where he's at. It's going to take me some time to pray for him. But, man, once he does become a believer, man, I could disciple him. We, man, that, that, maybe that's who it is. Don't even worry about that guy right now. Year one, everybody in here has your disciple already picked out for you. God's already pre-assigned it. It's your child's down the hallway. If you've got like four or five children, you've got your first four or five years covered. You don't, have to, you don't have to worry about anybody at the office yet. Disciple that child and turn them into a disciple maker. That was God's plan for the family. And let's go change the world and take God off trial for something he didn't do anyway. Let's pray. You can talk about this in your app. Jesus, God, forgive us for accusing you of being unloving, of sending people to hell when you've been the most loving being we've ever encountered. You've gone above and beyond what we'd ever even dream of doing for somebody. You sacrificed your own son to cover our sin so that we could be redeemed and bought back and spend an eternity with you. God, forgive us for blaming you for being sinless when it's been our own choices that have caused us to be separated from you. And God, I pray that you'd help us to love people well. And as we love you and we love people, we take the call to disciple a person this year seriously. That you'd land our hearts some missionaries and people groups to pray for. That you give us the resources and the time to carve out of our calendar to go and be a part of what you're doing. As in Jesus' name we pray.